to you all today, and uh, of course, Happy Easter. What a great day it is. Right, before we start, let's just pick up on that again. So Baby Deutsch over there, massive round of applause. Can we get a little, uh, any chance of a little Lion King hold up, or is she uh, too settled? She's too settled. Okay, Ella Rose, welcome to the family. Congratulations. Alex and Emily, going all right? Yeah. You look quite fresh as well, I've got to say. You guys are doing well. Good job. Got a uh, proud grandma and granddad right next to them as well. Fantastic. Good to see you guys. Uh, Easter Sunday. This is, the, uh, this is the highest and most important day in the uh, Christian calendar because of what it means for us as followers of Christ. We'll be looking at that today, of course. In some churches around the world, we, uh, they greet each other with this Greek exchange. I thought it might be good to kind of learn some Greek today. Anyone up for learning some Greek? Some biblical Greek. All right, here we go. It's going to come up on the screen. So I'm going to say to you, Christos Anesti, which means Christ is risen, and then en masse with verb, you're going to reply, Alethos Anesti, he's risen indeed. Are we ready for that? Okay, Christos Anesti. Excellent. Let's try it one more time. Christos Anesti. Exactly. That's great. Fantastic. Right, so what actually happened on Easter Sunday? Let's, um, let's read the passage. Vic is going to come and read from John 20 for us. On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as a cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had lain, one at the head And the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. 
So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Great. Thanks, Vix. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This passage that uh, Vix has just read is pretty much the, the kind of the most central facet of the diamond of the Christian faith. Jesus has been to the cross. That's what we observed on Good Friday a few days ago. And Jesus dies on the cross to take away our sins and to make us right with God. And his dead body is laid in a stone-carved tomb, a massive stone, as you can see from the picture, that's rolled in front of the tomb because he was dead. And then Mary and the other disciples arrive three days later to discover that the stone has been rolled away and that the tomb is open and importantly it's it's empty because and this is what it really all comes down to Jesus is alive that's what we're celebrating today he's resurrected from the dead the central most important claim of christianity is that Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins and is now risen from the dead if you put your faith in Jesus by believing that then everything else just flows from there that's what easter is all about Jesus who was dead, is alive. The grave is empty. That's what we celebrate today. Imagine that. Imagine the news cycle of someone famous like, I don't know, Joe Biden or Kate Middleton or someone got killed or died very publicly, especially if they were brutally killed in front of a baying mob and you saw their dead body and then a few days later you saw them walking around and they said they'd overcome death. You'd sit up and take notice. It would mean something. I'd, I'd venture that it would demand a response from us of some sorts. You'd have to do something with that information. You'd have to kind of file it psychologically somewhere. You really can't ignore something like that. That's how we should feel about the empty cross of uh, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Christos Anesti changes everything. The cross of Christ is therefore the central most important event in human history. And the empty tomb that followed three days later, Easter Sunday, should leave us in a perpetual state of wonder and excitement for what this means for us. Our brother, Jesus, the one who loves us and saves us, has overcome death. He's rendered death powerless. Nathaniel talks about this morning, death came to death. He's punch through the line that separates life and death. And he says, come and follow me out of death and into life. I've made a way. That's why Easter Sunday is the high point of the Christian faith. It's nothing but good news for us. Christos Anesti is the best news for us. Amen? I want us to go here today with a, a kind of a re renewed sense and awareness of this wonderful truth and how that might change things for you. On uh, Tuesday morning, as you sit at your desk at work, sorry to take you there already, I know it's only Easter Sunday, or look after the kids, or you're doing your shopping, or you're sitting in an armchair reflecting on life, there are some real implications for us to receive as a function of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And so today I'm going to talk about five gifts of the empty tomb, five free gifts on offer to you. Five free gifts that the empty tomb gives us. The New Testament spells us out in a, in a number of different ways, so we're going to look at a number of different New Testament passages to see this. But here we go. We've got five gifts of the empty tomb for you and I. Are we ready for this? Are we ready for this? Yeah. Great. Number one, the first gift is the gift of life. 
The first thing that the empty tomb gives you is the gift of life. It's the gift of life in its fullness here and now, and it's the gift of eternal life in the future. In the, in the years before Jesus' death, put yourself into the mindset of a first century Palestinian. As Jesus traveled around the kind of the dusty towns and villages of his region, he would announce that a new kingdom had emerged, a new way of living had come, a new way of relating to God, a new way of finding hope and peace. And one of the ways he did this was by making a number of claims about himself and then saying to people, this claim about me that I'm making, this has implications for you as well, so, so hear it and believe it. Here's one of them. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. To understand the significance of that claim, it, uh, it's helpful to understand the context of a person who the Bible talks about not yet knowing Jesus. In Ephesians 2.1, we read this. This is the situation before we know Christ. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's pretty bleak. It's pretty blunt. That's our starting point. Before you know Christ, sin has a grip on you and death has mastery over you. In that sense, before you know Christ, you're the walking dead. You aren't even, according to this passage, on life support. You are in the tomb already. You need Jesus with his sin-beating cross and his death-beating resurrection to come into your life and to remove sin from you and to breathe life into you. That's why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, that's all it takes. Simple belief. Jesus says, even though that person dies, yet will he live. And whoever believes in me will therefore never die. Physically, of course, our bodies will one day pass from this earth, but then we go to be with Jesus. And one day, even our physical bodies will rise up and be rebuilt and restored to eternal life in him. I heard someone say yesterday that there's going to come a point, this is a bit macabre, where not only does he deal with the rotten body in the grave, he deals with all the rottenness in our hearts as well. That's what Easter Sunday is about. This is why this statement Jesus makes is so crucial and fundamental. The two greatest problems facing humanity are separation from God and death. And we have absolutely no way of resolving these ourselves. And the only thing that can resolve both of these problems in one fell swoop is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if someone, I don't know, a politician or someone appeared on the evening news tonight saying, I've got something to, do, something to say, and it's going to have implications for all of you. You ready? Here we go. I'm the resurrection and the life. I don't know about you, but I'd be caught somewhere between this guy needs serious medical help and, okay, prove it then. You just cannot say that you will be resurrected when you die, but that you are the resurrection and not in some way prove that claim. That's what the empty tomb does. The empty tomb proves that when Jesus says in the same sentence that he is the resurrection and the life and that everyone who comes to him will have eternal life, the empty tomb proves that 
claim. He unwraps, we just sung it, the linen death shroud that they would have wrapped him in and the kind of the shroud of linen around his head and he, he gets up and he leaves the linen behind and he, he leaves the tomb and then he goes back to Jerusalem. This is an often under kind of uh, misunderstood uh, area of scripture. He doesn't just resurrect and then disappear. He's back in town and he's going about his business. He's not for the next 50 days in bed recovering from his wounds. It says that many saw him because Jesus was able to rise from the dead, heal his wounds, and carry on ministering to people and telling them about God. That's what he came to do. And that's why many decades later, Jesus' friend, John, receives this incredible vision of Christ, which is basically the book of Revelation. If you ever read the book of Revelation, it's just John, Jesus' friend, uh, having a vision of Jesus. The way Jesus announces himself to John in this grand vision is like this. He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And look, I hold the keys to death and Hades. Imagine introducing yourself like that. Marvel characters don't even get to do that. It's a bold cry of victory about his power over death. See, I was dead, and now I'm alive, and I hold the keys to death. If you hold the keys to a door, any door, you decide when it gets opened and when it gets locked. No one gets in or out unless you use your keys. Jesus has overcome death, and he has complete mastery over it now. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you come to me, I'll open the door and let you out. You'll receive nothing but life here and now and one day when you physically die because I hold the keys. And because I am the resurrection, I can deal with that too. It's pretty good news, guys. What do you think? The empty tomb is Christ's victory over death, but it's also his gift to us. What else could swallow up darkness but pure light? What else could swallow up death but his life? As the tomb stands empty this morning, his words have been fulfilled all across history and right into your life. He reminds us, I am the resurrection and the life. If you come to me, even if your physical body dies, you will never actually die because I alone hold the keys of death and I open those doors whenever I choose and I say come out whenever I choose. Therefore, there is fullness of life in Jesus now and fullness of life one day in the resurrection. Free gift to you. The empty tomb is Jesus' free gift of life to you. The second gift is Jesus' gift of peace with God. This, this really builds on what I've been saying so far. To be born a human, the Bible teaches that we are naturally born as inheritors of the sin that cast its shadow over all of humanity since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. My uh, friend Andrew Wilson helpfully explains the consequences of sin like this. He makes this illustration. He says it's like, I always get this word wrong, Chernobyl. I grew up in South Africa. We say it differently there. Chernobyl. Everyone remember Chernobyl? Yeah, remember the Chernobyl reactor disaster in the Soviet Union in 1986? A couple of people inside that nuclear reactor made a few disastrous operational mistakes, and the reactor exploded, sending radioactive material right over Europe. The effect of Chernobyl has affected the landscape forever. Immediately after this explosion, four kilometers, literally, immediately, four kilometers of tree life just turned brown and died. 
Multiple animal deaths, untold human casualties, they are still today counting the cost. The radiation from this explosion has affected 100,000 square kilometers around the reactor. And what's interesting is that most historians and researchers blame just one or two um, officials at the plant for this widespread devastation. Two people went badly wrong and their actions impacted and affected everyone else. That's a little bit like how sin has tainted us. Our representatives in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, got it badly wrong, and the radiating devastation has affected us all, sending death radiating into the world. Adam and Eve are just like us. We're no better, broken humans, prone to wander away from God, prone to disobey, prone to make ourselves the God of our own lives. The Bible calls that sin. And it's had devastating effects for us ever since. Consequently, Ephesians 2 verse 3 says this, Before the cross, before Jesus came and made things right at the cross, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's pretty unpleasant. Some versions of the Bible go even further than that and draw this link more viscerally. They say that we were children of wrath. That's what we were born into. And that's because of sin. By nature, to be born of Adam and Eve, to be a man or a woman, is to be born into a fallen state, into a radioactive world, and separated from God, and therefore subject to the consequences of that, which the Bible calls wrath. God, as our Father and our Creator, would be justly within His rights to punish us for our disobedience, our sin. And the penalty for sin, the Bible says, is death. And that's obviously what happens when you walk away from the free gift of life. You walk towards death. And therefore, there are really only two types of people in this world. There are children of God's wrath, those who oppose Him, or there are children of God's peace, those who say yes to Him. And the cross was God's way of saying the penalty for sin, the, the wrath justly poured out on humanity for sin and death, I'm going to deal with that myself. My much-beloved son will go to the cross and die for you. I will take the full force of the blow, and the penalty will be fully paid for by him. The debt is now paid at the cross. Because of this radioactive sin that clings to us, we were deserving of God's wrath. That's not good news. This is good news. Romans 4 and 5 in the message version of the Bible says, the sacrifice Jesus made us right with God. Therefore, since we have been made right with God through our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No more wrath, no more punishment. Children of wrath, Elsewhere in Romans 5, it tells us that we were enemies of God. Of all the people who you do not want to make an enemy of, God must surely be top of the list. But this is what the effect of our birthright of sin made us. We, we had no choice in the matter, just as the residents of Chernobyl and the area around that had no choice in the effect of the radiation from the nuclear fallout of the power plant. But the cross means that our sins have been washed away. That radiation has come off us. And the empty tomb means that Jesus has snatched 
victory from the jaws of death and given us life and peace with God. That's the gospel. We're no longer children of wrath. You no longer need to be a child of wrath. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, we're no longer deserving of God's punishment. We no longer need to live with fear or judgment of what happens when we die or some kind of cosmic karma that pays you back for all the wrong things you did in your life. Jesus has dealt with that for you. Our future is secure. We have peace with God. Rest easy. The empty tomb that we celebrate today is God's gift of peace to us. Empty tomb gives us life gives us peace. Third thing is it gives us the gift of help. Life is not easy. People sometimes say that Christianity is a crutch, That's, uh, that it's for the weak to lean on. That was an accusation that was made back at the start in the Roman Empire. It's an accusation that's still made today. And if by this people mean that we are totally unable to save ourselves or to fix every problem, then absolutely, yes, Christianity is a crutch. Jesus is who I lean on. I mean, what's the alternative? No thanks, all wise, all good, all loving, all powerful creator of the universe. I've got this one myself, thanks. Wars and pestilence all around the world, abuse and violence, things that I've done wrong, things that have been done to me, things that are troubling the deepest part of my life and those who are dearest to me, no thanks, all wise God, who knows me better than I know myself because he made me and he planned out every day for me, no thanks, I've got this. Of course not. Life is really hard. The Christian life is really hard. We know this. Here's what Hebrews 4 says about that. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we do have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How tempting do you think it would have been for Jesus as he was arrested and unfairly accused and tried for his life and beaten and mocked and punched and spat at and as he hung on a cross naked in front of his family and his friends dying a suffocating, painful, brutal death? How tempting do you think it would have been for Jesus to simply zap everyone and refuse to go through with it? I imagine it would have been pretty tempting. I would have done some serious zapping if it were me. There would have been a a long trail of stunned and zapped, concussed Roman soldiers around town if it were me. It would have been like one of those Asterix and Obelix books where Obelix just runs into a detachment of Roman soldiers and batters them all over the place. Not Jesus. In order to prove himself our saviour, understanding our deepest pain, to be able to empathise with the darkest and most painful parts of the human experience, he went to the most brutal death that the Roman Empire could conjure up, separated from God alone, scorned and mocked by the same people that he knew he was up there saving. Jesus' death that we observed on Good Friday, it's only called Good Friday because it's good news for us, it wasn't good news for him. And then Easter Sunday, the empty tomb. Let me explain that Hebrews verse to you again in my own language. 
we gateway have a high priest who's risen from the dead and ascended to heavens. Therefore, hold firmly to what you believe. The basis to be able to hold firmly for what we believe is that Jesus is risen from the dead. This fact will change everything. Jesus, having gone through death and pain and temptation, means that he understands every part of your struggle. And his resurrection, the empty tomb coming out the other side and ascending back to his rightful place on the throne of heaven at the right hand of the Father, means that we can now, this morning, approach God's throne with confidence, head held high, so that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can you imagine any other king allowing you free access to his throne room whenever you want, and understanding every single thing that you're feeling, and actually being able to do something about that? There's been no king like that in history. When I, um, when I used to work in the corporate world, I used to work for these big multinationals, tens of thousands of employees. So it's actually very rare to meet someone on the board who had real power to change things. So we were, we were always trained to um, consider how, if you found yourself in some unlikely situation by chance alone with a director in a lift or something for a few moments, to be able to very quickly and concisely articulate what you needed from them to help you to grow your part of the business or to somehow stand out. That was for a man or a woman, an ordinary man or a woman, who would never understand our hearts completely. How could they? And they might be able to provide some resources, if you were lucky. And that was someone who you may never actually even meet. But the King of Glory, through his death and resurrection and ascension to the throne, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, allows us free access at any time to the throne of God, where we might find mercy and grace to help us in our need. Don't stand far back, he says. Don't just wish that things were different and might change. Don't try and fix every broken relationship and emotion and financial situation or health situation yourself. You can't. You're not supposed to, and you don't need to. Come to my throne of grace. Anytime, all the time, speak to your father Express your needs, tell him your thoughts, express where you feel shame and guilt. You won't shock him, and he will not repel you. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he knows everything you've done already. What you will find is mercy, and what he does offer is grace to help you in your time of need. Because he's been to the cross, this is possible. And because of the resurrection, Jesus is in heaven, even this morning, waiting to receive you and help you. The empty tomb is God's gift of help to us. The fourth gift, the empty tomb, is God's gift of hope to us. I often think that life without God is pretty much an exercise in endurance. We live, and if we're lucky, we get seven or eight decades to try and extract as much as we can from life to make it pleasant and meaningful. But one day, if you'll allow me this, it's all going back in the box. You, you can't take it with me, with you. And one day, a few generations from now, it'll all be forgotten anyway. We'll all be forgotten anyway. That's how it works. But Revelation 21.4 tells of the end of time when God comes to dwell with us again. And it won't be 70 or 80 years and try and kind of white-knuckle it and grab onto whatever you can before it all ends. It'll be for eternity. It says this, then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. It's been remade. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he'll be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, things as they were under the radioactive Chernobyl-like curse of death, has passed away, dealt with. Because Jesus has been to the cross and reconciled us to relationship with God. And because he has left the tomb empty, overcoming death, it means that one day when he returns, he will not only renew the whole earth and replace brokenness with beauty, nor will he, uh, but he will dwell with us forever. And we will never, ever, ever be in need of anything, nor feel pain or loss or separation, because death has been overcome by him and will one day be removed from all creation because he holds the keys to death. He has mastery over it, and all of creation will be brought back to fullness of life. And in face-to-face relationship with God, we will lack nothing, and we will find all that we ever need, and it will be inexhaustibly refreshing and exciting and meaningful, and we will never, ever, ever get to the end of exploring God and all that He has made and all that He is, and that is the basis of our hope. The story for humanity ends well for the follower of Christ. The empty tomb gives us the gift of eternal life, and that means that the empty tomb gives us hope. This is the final thing. The gift of the empty tomb is personal. Often when we talk about all that Jesus has received, uh, sorry, achieved, we talk about it in terms of his work for humanity and what he has achieved for the world. He is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's true and that's right. He has done that. But the danger can be that we only ever think about the cross and the empty tomb in terms that kind of make sense to us as just one anonymous face in the millions that Jesus died for. But Paul the Apostle, who wrote most of the New Testament and gave all of his life for the sake of the gospel, when he was reflecting on these things, he said this, "'The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me.'" We cannot lose sight of the fact that Jesus loves you personally. That somehow in the mysterious providence and ability of God, as his son hung, dying on the cross, the father had you personally in mind. He called you by name. He, it says, knitted you together in your mother's womb. He loves humanity and he loves his church, but he loves you. Some of you need to hear that this morning and receive it, especially if you're someone who feels unlovely, or if you feel tempted to feel that Jesus died for the important people, for the super-Christians, for the guys who wrote the Bible, for the popes, or the priests, or the Bible scholars. The Savior died for you. He died for you, Hannah. He died for you, Micah. He died for you, Vix. 
He died for you, Jemima. He died for you, Sid. He died for you, Becky, you, Paul. He died for you. He saw you in the grave of your own making. He saw you dead in your transgressions. He saw you hopeless, and he saw you without peace. He saw you in your sin and your shame. He sees you now. He sees the uttermost depths of your heart. He sees your fears. He sees your hopes. He sees your hurt. He sees your tears. He sees your victories, and he sees when you mess it all up. And guess what? He loves you, and he gave himself up for you, and he gives himself to you. You are never forsaken, and you are never alone in your struggle. The empty tomb is personal. It's for you that Jesus went to the cross and shrugged off death and ascended the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father and prays for you and is with you. It's personal. He died for the sins of the world, that's true. But don't ever let anyone tell you that he doesn't love you personally and he didn't go to the cross and die for you personally. In that sense, the gift of God isn't just the cross or the empty tomb itself. Wonderful as those things are, the gift is Jesus. The gift that the cross and the empty tomb make possible is the gift of Jesus himself come to you, giving himself to you, removing death and shame and guilt and offering life, walking alongside you, giving you peace and hope, offering you help and mercy and grace in your time of need. It's a gift. It's personal, and it's for you. All you need to do is receive that gift. Believe on Jesus. Whether you know Jesus and need to rediscover the peace and the grace and the life that he offers or whether today is the first time you've heard this stuff and you're thinking, yep, that preacher has read my mail, I really haven't, I'm just a person trying to communicate to you what Jesus already says about you and knows about you in his word. He knows you, he deeply desires relationship with you, and he deeply desires to lavish his love and goodness on you to give you hope for the future and peace in your pain and to remove the grave clothes from you and to give you life in him, just receive it. Receive it in your heart. Say yes to him in your heart. Do it today. Why would you wait? If that's you, I'd love to talk with you later and pray for you and help you to cross the line of faith today and explain what life with Jesus looks like. The empty tomb is a, is a great gift. Jesus is the best gift. He is for the whole world but he's not just for other people. He's for you. Should we pray? King Jesus, we do so thank you for the cross. We do so thank you for the the depth, the mystery, the wonder of the cross, which on one hand was just a brutal execution, on the other hand was a cosmic, history-changing event fundamentally changed the relationship between man and God. Lord, we are so grateful for that. And we're so grateful that you didn't remain dead, that three days later you came busting through death, that you came out of that empty tomb, that you returned to your disciples in downtown Jerusalem, you carried on your work, and then you ascended to the Father, where even now you are ruling and reigning over every life and every situation from heaven. We thank you that you alone, you alone, not evil, Not Satan, not the world, but you alone hold the keys to death and Hades. You unlock that door anytime you want to. I pray this morning 
that if that door needs to be unlocked for people, you'd unlock it and you'd open eyes afresh today, that people would come running out of the grave into new life with you. Jesus, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for Easter Sunday. Be glorified. Amen.